0: A lot of Triple P money flowing in, getting forgiven, backlogs growing, balance sheets at an all-time high. Partner that now with the post-pandemic stuff. Significant market volatility of escalation, supply chain strain. You, you run both of those together you know, at mock speed. I feel like we're coming to the edge of a cliff. Something has to give.
1: Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Defense Never Rest. I'm your host, Megan, and I'm joined by Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, how you doing? Good. You look rejuvenated and rested and just relaxed. You just came off of a week vacay.
1: Yes, it was busy. We saw Paul McCartney.
2: I saw your Insta stories. Yeah,
1: so that was a highlight. That was definitely a highlight. It was awesome, though. Glad to be back. Really,
2: are you? <laughs> yes. You, you have to say that. A, <laughs> this is a word <laughs>
1: podcast. Absolutely. Thrilled.
2: Right. Vacation <laughs> is vacation. It's hard to come off of it in that inbox. And I know. Uh, yeah. And you came right back in. You had a depth this morning. So I did.
1: Like, Sorry, you got jump back in. <laughs>
2: well, today we have on Bill Lane, and we are here to talk about construction and managing risk and large, small, medium construction projects. He is a risk manager for Hudson Insurance Group um, and has been in the industry a long time and is, you know, an engineer by trade. So, you know, I think he's going to have a lot to say. And he's just a great guy. He lives in the town next to where I grew up. So I'll I can't see. help but like that too. There you go. It's a
1: Connecticut thing. <laughs> it
2: is. It can, all roads. <laughs> 84, 95, Merritt Parkway. Everyone, I don't know. Yeah. So many... All roads lead to Connecticut. Yes. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Bill. Welcome to the Defense Us. How are you today?
0: I'm well, Megan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
2: It is a beautiful day. It's a first day of summer, right? I think. It, I think I've been telling everyone that. You um, are right. It,
0: it is officially, and you know, my kids reminded me this morning when they woke up that it was the first official day of summer. Yeah. Oh, so I'm sure some on- some ice creams in my future.
2: Are they on summer break already?
0: They are. Their last day of school is Friday, uh, so they're 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 all gassed up to go crazy
1: I'm so so jealous I'm so (laughs) jealous of kids you you just have no idea how good you have it like the whole summer you just hang out and have fun
0: you know Uh, there was at some point this morning said, what am I gonna do today and I was like I don't have that problem
1: no (laughs) we know what we're doing
0: yeah five days
1: a week we got a plan (laughs) Well, or
2: but the one thing they are not doing is bugging you.
0: <laughs> no, t- thank God. No, today today they, they went out with some of their friends. So it, it's nice and quiet here.
2: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, we have one more day in school after today. So today was, we I, I've been biking to school with my, my kids and some of their friends like one day a week. So today was the last biking day. Um, And actually on the way, one of their friends was like, Megan, you know, on the right ride home when you're biking all alone, do you get lonely? I was like, no. Not at
0: all. It's the quietest, most tranquil part of my whole day.
2: Yes. It's like, I don't have to stop. I don't have to tell everyone to get right. I, it's, it, it's quite delightful. Yeah. I, I know we had
0: talked about this. Like the the pre, I, we're, you know, our team works remotely and has, you know, that sort of as part of the business structure. We, we go to, you know, where our contractors, where they work and where their projects are. But when we're not out traveling, we, you know, we work remotely and that was always the case, you know, before the pandemic. So the, the work from home thing was always, you know, w- was something we always did. And when folks, you know, got exposure to it during the pandemic, they're like, this is awesome. Well, for us, it was sort of like the world collapsed on us because everyone else came home. And I was like, yes. this is, this is, you, you all think this is me, this is miserable for me right now. Cause every, you know, there's, there's, there's classes happening out in my kitchen table. And you know, it, it was uh, it was an adjustment period. We all figured it out, and and we're definitely uh, using all of the internet bandwidth.
2: Yes, so. oh yes, yeah. I feel your pain because pre-pandemic I was home four days a week, and then when everyone crashed my party, I was like, oh, I had yeah. to wake up early. I was wake I was waking up at like four thirty just to get my little tranquil space before the rest of the house woke up because they just they rained on my parade.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you, you started I same thing. You you started working sort of the off hours. You know, you'd work for early in the morning, you know, kind of do the things in the middle of the day of, you know, helping get them online, offline, do the coursework, lunch, mm-hmm. and then they'd all, you know, finish their day and then we'd finish ours. So it was like one of this, you know, sort of uh, uh, merry-go-round, you know, yes. of the work day.
2: And there's some aspects I miss of it, but I, I don't miss like feeling like I was being pulled in 18 directions and being terrible at all of them.
0: And <laughs> was I think for me that was the key too is like you you managed through that, but you never felt like you were doing any of them really successfully.
2: Yeah, and I don't know about you and like, but I hearing everyone having like bring, taking on those hobbies and all these things, I was like,
1: I did none of those things. No.
2: <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> I developed zero new hobbies during the pandemic,
1: and I, except like anxiety. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: I, got, I got a lot of that. But yeah, yeah. Got, that was my hobby. I'm yeah. like, and I look back
2: and I was like, I'm jealous of everyone else who's was like, oh, like they, I don't know, they started a sourdough starter or they, I, they picked up. all I, I did not, I did nothing of that. I mm. just was stressed out the entire time.
0: <laughs> no, no doubt, yeah. uh, all of that. Yeah, there, there were no new habits. Uh, the only thing I increased was my frequency of snacking. <laughs>
1: So I'm wiping yeah. down groceries.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't miss that. No,
1: Yeah. no, uh, no. Yeah. I do like the
2: walks around the block at first. I was like, Oh, this is so nice. Look at all. Our neighbors yeah. High. yeah.
0: <laughs> there, there are things from the pandemic. I do like, because we do travel so much in our role. Like I do like the fact that airplanes are significantly cleaner. You know, nice. people are a little bit more attentive to like that, you know, uh, uh, sanitizing and, and care and cleanliness. I'm okay if that sticks around for a while or forever yeah. for that matter. I, I like that now that we've returned to sort of the, the pre-pandemic travel piece of it that, that I do like.
2: Or like if you're sick, sick, stay home. Stay. That's nice. It's a
0: good. <laughs> yeah. I I'm okay that that stigma is now in the past. You know, I think that was a generational thing of, you know, we're tough. We're going to go to work. It's like, no, no, no. If you're sick, it's totally fine for you to stay home or we can even do this. And I won't share with you, you know, my, you know, whatever, I always joke with the, you know, whatever, whatever caucuses that you have, the the (laughs) streptococcus, staphylococcus, you keep whatever that is. So.
1: It's crazy that it took like a worldwide pandemic to be able to take a sick day when you're actually sick, (laughs) but at least we made it. We made it here. (laughs) <laughs>
0: we did. And and, and and honestly, I, you know, I think that well, we're going to start leveraging technology to our benefit. I you know, say being more efficient, stuff like, you know, go, going on Zoom, going on Teams, something that you would have invested a tremendous amount of time in travel and preparation, you can do significantly more efficiently now.
1: Absolutely.
0: So I, I'm okay if a lot of that stays, you know, but, but I did miss the in-person stuff and we're doing that now. And that's really, you know, for, for construction, you know, seeing is yeah. believing. So getting out to those project sites, but I, I still think you're seeing a lot more technology embraced on those project sites, you know, that are making things more efficient. So I'm, I'm happy with a lot of like the pandemic sort of, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that be, you know, you know, dreary about the, the the hangover that we've got from it, you know, and the escalation, volatility, supply chain strain, all of the hangover stuff that's creating pressures. But there were some benefits, so try, trying to find those silver linings.
2: Yeah, and I I say that a lot too. Like that that you know, while it certain parts really sucked, there are certain definite silver linings to it all, and we will get through this this period that we're in right now it's not all doom and gloom everyone thought it was doom and gloom you know two and a half years ago and we got through it we'll get through this too
0: (laughs) some days i'm I'm not sure i i want to give me some of that osmosis of optimism because because right now i'm not you know i feel like the winter is coming especially in our our space you know construction had you know one of those uh, pandemic proof markets a lot it's just most of it just kept going during the pandemic you know projects in a lot of cases accelerated because there there were you know empty buildings and empty schools and I mean there's a you know healthcare you know that that marketplace stopped doing construction but now post-pandemic they've got their foot on the gas so that I would say construction was one of those COVID proof type of marketplaces and it got a lot of boost from, you know, triple P money. But so fast forward, now all that triple P money's gone. All those loans have been forgiven. Most general contractors and subs have chalked that up to the bottom line and either, you know, slid it out of the company or are doing different things with it. Um, you know, and now we've, we're, we're heading into a volatile market. So I, I, I'm, I'm in the doomsday scenario where yeah. we're heading towards the cliff at, you know, mock speed um and trying to help our our contractor partners like prepare for that
2: well before we dive because that i think that is a really interesting topic i want to to talk about but before we do let's so our listeners know who we're talking to (laughs) sorry uh, (laughs) no it's great remind me to come back to it but like i want everyone i don't want us to jump off the cliff before (laughs) they know what cliff we're standing on (laughs) absolutely So, so bill by by Trade, you you are an engineer um, and you came out of school and you, you work for a construction company for some time and then landed in claims. So tell us a little bit about how, how that winding path got you to claims.
0: Yeah. So again, I, I was uh, telling you earlier, I had listened to that episode with, with David Corey from Argo Group and you had asked him the question, you know, not not most folks set out in their career to go into insurance you know, and, and interested in how you got there. He, he might be one of the outliers that he actually did go to college to to become uh, an underwriter in insurance. But no, I, I didn't set my career out to to land in insurance. Uh, like, as you know, I, I got out of school with an engineering degree uh, and realized quick right at the end of my college career that mm, I've got this degree, but I don't really want to go do the the true engineering of, you know, running calculations and designing things. So I I took the, the, the next pathway, which was, you know, um, uh, educated problem solving. That's what engineers sort of do. But so I became, you know, worked for a large general contractor, uh, based out of the mid Atlantic. And that was an incredible experience because, you know, you get sort of put out on these project sites and and they're all these sort of, you know, projects are Rubik's cubes, you know, you're kind of, you know, unfolding things you know moving contractors around orchestrating this this really you know uh, orchestrating a plan effectively and adjusting when things don't go right um and I did that for for uh a, a while and I'd probably still be doing that but the the company was sort of uh Getting into these larger scale projects, and, and and like most construction, as you finish one project, you've got to go where the next one is. And if it's not right down the street, you might have to go, you know, across the state, or you might have to move. the The, the company wanted me to to go out to the Midwest and build data centers. And at the time, we were we were growing our family at home, so I walked home. I came home, and I said, "Look, we're gonna close up shop here. We're gonna move out to the Midwest." And and that really wasn't an option for us. So. I had run into a gentleman who had the same sort of career trajectory, worked at a large general contractor. And he at the time worked for an insurance carrier and said, look, we're looking for someone with construction experience. It sounds like you have that. You'll still have to travel, but most of the time you'll end up, you know, on your pillow back home. So it's still traveling, but it's not necessarily the long-term commitment. So I gave that a try. Fast forward 10 years later, I'm still doing that. So
2: um,
0: I call myself a builder at heart and really where my, my passion is 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 for you know a uh, building and in, in large general contractors and and how they do de- you know how they deploy their business what their processes and practices are and how they're managing risk but i do that through the lens of a builder you know while i work for the carrier
2: yeah um and so how was that transition though for you going from working for you know solving the problems in-house so to speak to then now you're with the insurance carrier and now you're dealing with First of all, multi- multiple contractors and like you're kind of on the outside looking in. So, you know, how is that transition for you to go from inside to out?
0: That's a great, great question. Uh, it was really challenging at first because when you're, you know, w- when you're with, you know, a builder, you know, you think that's at the time that was what I thought was the only way and the best way to do something. You know, this is how we do it. These are our processes. These are our controls and we're going to do them. And, and, you know, there's a tangible output to that, you know, you see this, this building or this project, you know, uh, uh, change, develop, and, and ultimately, you know, there's a, there's a finished product. And I I still do it with my kids in the car, I drive past, and I'm like, look, I did, you know, we, we built that building, or, you know, that one is, you know, I, I know that there's something that shouldn't be there in that building, you know, those, those sort of funny stories, and you move to a A role like this one where it's there's less tangible output there's no finished building at the end there's no uh there's no resulting output for the effort it's very different you know when you're trying to affect process change so that that was a really big uh change and it took a while to get comfortable with you know not not necessarily having a a direct output because you talk to contractors, they may not want to change what they're doing. So you could talk and and try to influence it, but they may not necessarily embrace it. So, you know, that was an evolution, but you sort of, uh, we had talked about earlier, if, if one per, you can affect one change, you know, you you kind of attach yourself to the small wins because not necessarily everything's broken. You're just looking for a blind spot or something to potentially enhance because a lot of what GCs are doing now is, is really good. And we're trying to fall, find that small weakness in the armor and say, you know, this is what we found. You could fill this in, but you don't have to. So, um, you know, there's no necessarily direct output to the input into it.
2: But in your, in your world, you, I imagine you deal with some like larger contractors versus some like probably smaller outfits. Do you tend to see more resistance With change with some of the smaller outfits?
0: Uh, Again, another great question. Cause I, yeah, our enterprise has, has contractors that, you know, usually we measure sophistication along with the revenue. They kind of run in line, you know, a smaller operation, lower revenues tends to be less formal, less formal, more agile, sort of ad hoc shoot from the hip. And then you've got, you know, businesses that are, you know, Billion dollar plus and there's all the process in the world, but they're so big that it's easy for someone to sort of subvert that process, so they they each have their own pitfalls. Um, But yeah I mean it's that that's an incredible kind of goes back to the earlier conversation when you leave that GC you think that's the only way things are done stepping into this role, you get to see that spectrum of you know. Of uh, varying sophistication, from the small, small, you know, smaller GCs to those really large, sophisticated ones, and, and everyone—I uh, always say it sticks bricks and mortar—but everyone arrives there a little bit differently. Yeah. So that—that that was a, a real awakening for me, is to see how other other contractors, you
2: know, do their business. And I imagine, or at least what I've seen a lot of, is sometimes when you have. Um, I wanna say like the, the, the lower revenue, I'll say contractors, sometimes their contracts <gasps> with their subs are what need the most work.
1: <laughs> if there's a contract. <laughs> yeah. That's assuming that there's a contract. And there's a, there's a certificate of insurance and all that.
0: So that I, that's why in my, and our, our product line, sub default insurance, you know, we, we, you know, there's no contract, there's no coverage. That is a tether yeah. to our policies. They'd have to have at least a subcontract agreement that they could leverage the sub against, you know, say, look, you're not doing this. You're in default. So I, I the good news is that, that, that level, we're, we're usually not engaged <laughs> with the GCs, but I, I would say, there there's a lot that you know um after that subcontract i think is where you know you, you guys do uh uh you know uh, have a construction group you you've seen the arbitration and mediation and there's there's so much that happens after a subcontract that doesn't go right that you know it, it it's that that's i think where we 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 play a vital role as you know um most of what I think and I hate to say this, but most of what we're trying to help our general contractors do is is avoid loss in the challenging scenarios that get them into a mediation or arbitration or or legal entanglement is, you know, helping them try to avoid some of those those challenges. So that's really our role is to try to you know roll back and, and help them be a better business and make better selections and, and Better risks so that they could avoid sort of the downstream, you know, uh, legal marketplace, candidly.
1: Are you finding issues because of um, shortage of workers in the construction industry? And in terms of, you know, GCs hiring maybe workers who aren't as skilled or aren't as skilled in that specific trade? Like, are you sort of seeing a trend right now?
0: V- very much. I think, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of data. I mean, we, we as a marketplace i think that's what we need to use to understand you know where our risks are and where our losses are and and where our losses aren't but i would say in our loss data you know where you see subcontractors default you know the the the, the leader for a long time was insolvency you know financial behavior but i think you see a shift in that now to more operational characteristics where they they don't have a a highly skilled workforce or you know that's usually in partnership with a poorly managed business, but I would say that you know in our loss data um, nonconformance, which is, goes back to non-skilled trades, you know putting in significantly nonconforming or serial defective work, um, and then do, trying to do that with with not enough labor that's to your point there's not enough skilled labor in addition to that you know they're trying to do more with less it leads to a lot of those systemic problems so i would say we're seeing a shift from insolvency to to failure of performance through you know lack of skilled labor uh sort of taking over that insolvency as a loss leader well
2: and not even to mention like when you have that not skilled labor it's just you're opening up the door to more accidents and problem, like <laughs> i mean it's I it's know.
0: everything i mean you yeah. you think about uh, again I, I stick in the the subcontractor default uh, you know subcontractor performance security space most most general contractors the majority of their work is is done through subcontracts so you're only as good as your worst subcontractor so when when you pick a bad subcontractor or you pick a marginal subcontractor, I don't want to say they're all bad, but you pick a marginal subcontractor, someone that you don't have an established relationship with or someone that, you know, is um, has prior bankruptcies or, or I could go on to the list of directional indicators that would make a, a sub less desirable. But if they fail on your project, um, it does a lot more than just, you know, hurt hurt that particular element of your job trying to find someone to replace it but it, it slows down your job it hurts the project morale you know it's it has an effect on your project's owner i mean there there are so many other things that it it affects um that, that most folks aren't thinking about so yeah i mean it's 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 a um this i think a subcontractor default is is truly you know yeah. catastrophic to your project
2: what i'm, I'm curious about too and it actually your background, the your background behind you is what makes, it's making me think of this, but you know, when you have like a large, large scale project, like, you know, like how, like you see behind you multiple cranes, that sort of thing from a risk perspective, is that riskier in your eyes to have like this large scale project that you have so many moving parts or something that's a, a smaller scale that you may have you know, a handful of subs working on the job, like in your eyes, what, what do you, where do you weight the risk?
0: So I go back to the, the loss data sort of, you know, being, I'll be anecdotal here, but I would say the majority of loss comes in that lower sophistication, you know, banding. And I I, I go to less project size, more to subcontractor size, but I would say on Large mega projects—they're not immune to a default, but they're so large, and the the project's mass is so critical, and there's so many controls in place that if a sub fails, you 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 you've usually got a plan B already sort of on yeah. deck. So that I actually look at the mega projects—they're not immune to it, but they're—I would say they're less of a focus. I would go more down to that lower sophistication level, the smaller scale stuff that that GCs just think inherently, like you know, it's the the, the turn and burn. Like we just do this all the time we do, and they get distracted yeah. and don't necessarily follow a process or, or make an exception, you know, and that's where you'll see losses because you, you feel like it's the standard fare that just gets, you know, uh, done on a regular basis. But that's where I think we would see the majority of our losses in the lower sophistication, smaller subcontract size space
2: i would say from my experience with defending said construction claims it's always the smaller ones that are and they're always a hot mess like- big
0: time big time they, they, they again they they lack process because they just yeah. assume it will 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 develop like like all the other ones do
2: and i i've had issues with them too that you you have a general contractor in name but then it's really the sub who's on site who's acting in the shoes as if they are the general contractor and then it's an even bigger hot mess
0: of, so the, of- I, the, again that, that's where our space is is really and our, our product is deployed with large general contractors you know think of the ENR 400 so someone who has you know um larger than 50 million in annual revenues is where our product could be deployed uh, and it it rides on the backs of subcontracts, so it's it's a it's a performance security product that you use on your enterprise. And when you issue a subcontract to somebody, and your project is attached in our policy, we stand behind that risk. You know, with the GC who has who has a deductible, so they they've got some skin in the game on how they want to manage that, and they're not small deductibles. But um, you know, if they have a subcontractor performance failure, they that that deductible allows them to address it speed. That's a differentiator between our product and surety is as they can respond um, and how they want to replace that subcontractor. But a lot of times there's uh, there's I go back to that serial non conforming work. You've got construct. You know you got got quality issues. You've got to complete that work. You now you've got schedule delays. You know maybe there's there's. Uh, Follow on trades that get compressed. You know, there, there's a lot of cost exposure there and how they manage and track that. Um, it gets messy. I mean, there's yeah. to, to your point, it gets really messy. And then if the site has that subcontractor has sometimes they have a little bit of fight left in them, and that's when it gets extra messy is they're fighting, you know, that it was a, a they're fighting that default or they're fighting that it was, you know, caused by them. So, um, yeah, I completely agree on that is, is it can get, you know, it, it can get messy.
2: Particularly if it's mid project, <laughs> because now you, have, now you have a project that's in full swing that par- parts could be halted and it's holding up the, the progress because you have, you know, a disagreement amongst yeah. your subs.
0: I would say, I mean, you, you all see when you drive, you're driving down the turnpike or driving anywhere, there's wood, wood frame construction is everywhere. That is a massive loss leader for our product, you know, is, is, is wood framers. Um, that is the critical path of every project. So when you think about if the wood framer is, is failing or falling behind or, or, you know, systemically installing non-conforming work, I mean, it's got a massive impact on that project. Wow. Because the entire schedule runs through that, so those those tend to be um, more significant losses. Is when those wood framers, you know, end up in default.
1: Yeah, construction projects are kind of like dominoes lined up. One goes down, the whole thing goes down. <laughs> I go back <laughs> to that. While you're waiting, yeah,
0: that that Rubik's cube. You know, you're yeah. constantly moving and adjusting. You know, trying to orchestrate everything and and and. In perfect, you know, synchrony, but you know, it's not practical to think that everything's going to go exactly to plan. But a sub default really sends that plan right. into a, a a tailspin.
2: Right. So I wanted to touch back on what you what you mentioned before we dove in um, to to you and your your background, but you're you're talking how you're in the, you you feel like you're in the doomsday scenario right now, and um, I wanted to expand on that too. Like we're and. It, for those of us who aren't immersed in in your world you know explain like how, what what is that doomsday scenario that you're feeling right now
0: yeah so uh, i i think we were, we were talking that i wouldn't say construction was entirely you know pandemic proof but it was one yeah. of those industries that during the pandemic mostly stayed you know fully operational and to some degree projects were accelerated because you know, facilities were empty. They weren't, you know, occupied. They they it adjusted a lot of things. Schoolwork, K to twelve, they were empty. They got to move things along. Uh, I know we were talking like healthcare kind of went quiet for a while, but now that in the post pandemic, we've seen that you know come back online in full force. But during the pandemic, construction and contract general contractors mostly stayed um, in operation. Uh, partner that with the, the contracting space, G- GCs and subcontractors having access to triple P money that, that they were able to, to uh, obtain, demonstrate that they used for payroll and get forgiveness on. So they all got this really healthy boost to their balance sheets uh, in, in 2020 and in some cases 2021. This year, we're seeing, um, you know, we saw the forgiveness of all those. This year, I think we'll see a lot of them take that off their balance sheet. You know, there's some financial behaviors there we gotta watch. I'd still say the construction industry is really robust. There's more work out there than than there ever has been. So we're seeing really healthy backlogs. So I think it will place a strain on the marketplace from a labor availability and uh, um, subcontractor performance capability. So you're running, sort of running at, at mock speed with all these things, a lot of triple P money flowing in, getting forgiven, backlogs growing, balance sheets at an all time high. But I, you partner that now with the post pandemic stuff, which is, you know, significant market volatility of escalation, supply chain strain. Um, you know, we've got obviously an event happening overseas right now that that throws a real wrench into things, all of these other factors that are sort of, you, you run both of those together, you know, at mock speed, I feel like we're coming to the edge of a cliff, potentially, which is, you know, that doomsday of, you know, yes. all of these perfect, uh, all of these scenarios happening in perfect storm, you know, so something has to give, you know, sort of, you know, what, what happens? Uh, what my fear is that triple P money comes off the balance sheets, subcontractors don't have the, the health that they were conveying that they had, um you know a lot of these pressures from the supply chain and and market volatility and escalation they're not able to absorb or gets gets poorly managed at a at a at a subcontractor deal level it's going to create a lot of of pressure i think in the 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 marketplace
2: i mean i imagine the supply chain aspect being such a big impact because if everything's slower so you your project i mean the you get your materials slower so that your project moves slower so like it costs you more money and it, it delays when how long you're done like it just it it's just move makes everything move at molasses pace and so then you have these workers who can't go on to the next job because they're still on this job or you have them jumping going to the next job while they're waiting for the supplies to come into this job and you might lose them
0: real so that that we haven't seen uh, a lot of the strategy obviously to curb the supply chain was was early release pre purchase of materials whether you do that through the GC directly or the subcontractor but but one addressing one problem creates another one. That's sort of the world we live in. Is that there doesn't matter where you move, the gray cloud's going to follow me. But <laughs> um, you know, you try to address that risk by pre-purchasing materials or paying for stored materials, but that creates a risk. You if you you buy materials through a subcontractor early, you've got to store them. You've got to hope that they're going to stay in business long enough to deliver those to your project, or or have a means to manage that. You know, after you've let that, you know, you're paying for something that's not a finished product yet. So th- there's risks with doing that. So you, you shift risk from, from, you know, schedule risk to finance risk. So I, I guess that's what I'm talking to both sides of my mouth is one, one risk creates another, addressing one creates the other. So that, that we've seen a lot of that pre-purchasing materials, early releases to kind of curb that schedule uh, supply chain strain. Um, really now the, the bigger problem is, is that, that, uh, escalatory market volatility, you know, we've, we've talked with our GCs recently, their stuff that they estimated only a short time ago to, to set out, you know, bids and GMPs on is coming in, you know, way off the map, you know, something I'm trying to use a scale, like a project that was 60 million is now coming in at 80 yeah. because, you know, we're trying to push all of that escalatory and inflationary risk to the subcontractors, you know, that's part of your risk. And they're either padding it or they're, they're setting out, you know, my, my bid is good for today and today only. And if you don't let me release those materials today, I have no clue what they're going to cost tomorrow. I'm obviously generalizing, but that's sort of the the general. You
1: can't, you can't count on things maybe the way that we used to be able to count on things in in the industry. So it's like you said, everything's so volatile. It's hard to sort of pin things down sometimes.
0: Yeah, and 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 honestly that just uh, that 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 is a credit risk to the to the subcontractor if we don't get a GC that that partners up with them. So we're, we're hopeful our GCs are setting out some reasonable, you know, parameters when, when they're trying to manage that, you know, set set some sort of baseline escalation or or commodity price and say, look, you know, at the time you release it and you can confirm whatever you paid, we'll carry the difference in a, in an allowance. Uh, So we're hopeful for those behaviors and that's what we're talking about and trying to advocate that they do, but we we can't say that's uniformly happening and that we can't insulate ourselves from some potential loss that will happen there. Right.
2: So what is like, when, when you have, you have a project going, what is your role in the ongoing process of that project? Are you involved throughout or are you only involved at, you know, kind of, the start when you're working with your your clients to get the on their contracts with the subs.
0: So um not at the project level. So okay. we 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 often I go to that trust but verify model. We we try to really understand our our contractors' business sort of from a holistic perspective, you know. Okay. Um you know, who, who's making decisions, how are the decisions being made, what's the process that goes along with them, you know. Who, who can do certain elements of their business and again, what the processes look like. So we try to really underwrite a uh, an entirely what I'll call as the holistic life cycle of how a contractor does business. And then we'll go out to projects and do the verify piece of, you know, this is what we understood you to be doing. And, and we either A, do or don't see that and and give them sort of constructive feedback to that point. Um, but we we definitely understand, you know, their their subcontracting methodology, how they do that, you know, what's the process for that? Who can who can uh, notice default a subcontractor? How that process looks like, and then again going to projects and, and um, verifying some of those control points. But but really, our service is much at a higher level, more organizationally, and understanding. Like I go back to if there's a process blind spot, how do we help them fill that in? You know, it's like you. the the one we talked, we've talked about a lot recently is, um, you know, sub default insurance has been around for 25 years. You think we would have solved all the blind spots on our own product versus the subcontractor marketplace. We haven't. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure someone will kill me for saying that, but you know, (laughs) we're going to figure it out eventually, but uh, subcontracts typically have a notice to cure, you know, a a period for subcontractors to fix, fix something that they're not doing in accordance with their contract. And if they don't do that, you can set out you know your default provisions. you know you're you've you, you've been given a notice to cure. you haven't cured it. you're now in default. Yeah. Um, what we're seeing in our marketplace is is um, too much autonomy in, in those um, communications, candidly, that potentially jeopardize coverage. So if a, a project manager can go out there and issue a notice to cure, but he you know he or she, says something in that that lettering or wording that potentially triggers default before you want to so i i'm going back to the words matter so we're trying to help our general contractors develop boilerplates for those communications such that it's it's pretty standardized and and you know it requires a level of approval at least to a business stakeholder someone that might have ownership or or a higher level of authority to review those before they go out So um, you know, we're trying to, to help our contractors bolt on a process that fits with their subcontracting. And a, a lot of them have that, but some of them don't.
1: That's valuable because like you said, that could affect their coverage. I could, I mean, that affects their bottom line and, and it could be one sentence in a letter that they didn't have. Yeah,
0: and that that happens. And and unfortunately as a carrier and not just at Hudson, I would say all other carriers that the, the the we've got that stigma of of we're set our first reaction is to set out and deny a claim that's really not the case we we have we have a policy in place which is our mutual agreement and we need to make sure you're following the policy and and you may have inadvertently not done that but we're not out there maliciously trying to deny coverage but that is our agreement so what what i'm trying to do is fast forward or rewind and make sure they have a process that doesn't jeopardize coverage and uh, 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 an organizational level of approval that, that kind of gets out ahead of that so that we're not in that frictional experience of denying a claim or, or having just a frictional conversation. Um, you know, I, I go back to that customer claims experience. It's why they buy insurance. You know, yeah. hopefully they don't need it, but, but if there wasn't claims, they wouldn't need us. So right. how often do we have a claim experience that is is unfavorable? You know, it's frictional and we hand a customer a check and they're upset that is so defeating as i've just given you a giant check and you're unhappy with me it's it's so uh so disappointing i'm not saying that they will be happy but you, you don't want that the, the experience to be miserable
1: it shouldn't be adversarial necessarily right. not right. at the exactly. outset at least
0: exactly yeah. and, and all too, it happens too often so i guess that's where our focus is right now on trying to make sure our, our gc partners have a process in place that you know insulates notice, you know, you're on notice of a potential default or on notice of, of this issue, you're not performing and if you don't correct it, we're going to place you in default and then, you know, defaulting them. So, but all too often they get entangled and it gets, you know, it, it it's frictional. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I, And also the, some of the issues may arise too because a lot of these, the subs they may be using are probably people they've used over time. And now maybe there's a closer microscope on who they do business with. And this might be, you know, Joe, I've known Joe for 25 years. I've always used Joe for, you know, for this. And now the, some curtain is getting pulled back a little bit and they might realize maybe Joe isn't the best or the healthiest, healthiest company to have on the job.
0: So when you're done with your current career path, Megan, we're going to have you come over and do this because <laughs> that is one of the consistent messages is, is letting your guard down with the, the subcontractors you feel you're close to is you know you, you make an exception for them. Is I know, yeah, I'll use you. I know Joe, I've known Joe for 20 years. I don't need to check on Joe's balance sheet, I, I trust Joe. Well, what you don't realize is Joe's completely cleared out his company and is gonna retire next year, turn it over to his son and there's gonna be absolutely no balance sheet there so you've just subcontracted with that but you've made an exception based on that long standing relationship uh, my, i would actually advocate to to go the other route the subcontractors that are closest to you you need to watch the most because they can also hurt you the most as you know you want to you want to deploy some element of continuous qualification you want to you want to check on that balance sheet health. You want to check on that work in progress. You want to understand that succession planning. I mean, you want to over invest in understanding the success of their business, because if it goes down and they're that close to you, you're going to get hurt even worse.
2: But they ha- and they have some, they have someone else. They like, they don't have to ask Joe. They have someone else. They're like, Oh, just blame it on the insurance company. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> You're That's it I easy. always go to that, but blame blame <laughs> the big bad carrier. The big bad carrier is making you do that. I'm totally fine with that, Um, because they they do. You know, there's a lot of ego in the construction business. So subcontractors, will, you know, oh, I've worked with you for 20 years. but you don't trust me? It's like, well, it's not that they don't trust you. Is that well, when it comes down to brass tacks, you know, your success is really contingent on. You know the overall health of your business and if you're not making good financial decisions or you've taken on too much work i have to i have to mitigate that
2: and it it, it does happen so often like how you meant how we're coming with this scenario of joe get, you know getting rid of his company and giving it to his son but i think that happens so much like you know yeah. you have a family business that's been established over time and the succession plan doesn't always work according to how that succession plan was thought out because you can't you can't control it from the grave. So you know you just it it's sometimes when these businesses kind of fall apart.
0: Yeah, I mean there, there is I wouldn't say that it's a it's a it's a trend, but I, I there there is there is a common uh, yeah. uh, loss data point in that succession planning. It's a really good reason why I think why our product actually exists. We we have a loss currently. That, that that the the root cause is secession planning. There were two business partners, you know, that they, they did uh, large superstructure work in New York City, and and one of the business partners said, I I I'm, I'm going to retire. I'm going to take my equity out of the company, and he left the other business holder with all of the credit risk. Effectively, and he said, I I can't I can't do this anymore. I don't have enough, you know. I don't have enough support in my 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 financial health to finish my obligations. So the other business partner just abandoned the 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 business. So not that that secession planning was there. I mean this that was sort of one of the things I go back to why why our product is good and allows it to step in, is is that wasn't planned. I mean, that the one business partner just said, woke up one day and said, I'm I'm out. <laughs> um it, it happens. Um but we were the RGC was able to step in find a replacement subcontractor and and manage through that, but the root cause of that law that that default was was secession planning. And I would say that the, another one is those those second to third generation handoffs that they t- typically ends up being some strain there um, so vetting that out you know it's not there's no perfect science for it but it 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 is a uh a common data point in some losses
2: yeah and as, as someone who um has a family business that's going into our third generation i hope i hope we don't see that fate <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think if you talk to like a, an FMI, they, they do a lot of that business planning with multiple different facets, not just construction. I think they'll say anecdotally, it can survive. Most most family businesses can su- survive first to second. The, the most failures occur from second to third. Oh, no. So that's what they say. But I'm, I'm saying it's not, there's no perfect to data to that. Yeah. <laughs> But if it can survive the second to third, it can usually make it on after that.
2: But it, interesting is my, my grandfather, this is unrelated to the, the, our current business. My grandfather was in a business with his brother and I forget the exact allocation. I think his brother had a slightly larger percentage and they got into like a fight and his brother just shut him out completely. It was like, that's it, wow. it's over.
1: <laughs> wow. And I never spoke
2: again, like ever again.
0: Yeah, I never mix business and family. (laughs) Don't tell me that once or business and friendships. That those kind of things. You leave those two completely, you know, insulated from each other.
2: Just to pivot a little bit, you know, where since you're you're so ingrained in the construction industry, are you seeing any areas of the country that are having more um I don't want to use the word boom because I don't know if boom is, but more activity than others right now.
0: Yeah. So, and again, our data could be skewed. I'd say our, you know, we might have more concentration in one market than another insurer might, but I think anecdotally we probably share the same uh, exposure. You know, you're always going to have a lot of activity in the, the, the key metro areas, you know, like New York city, um, you know, de- uh, but I would say, if I had to generalize, you're seeing uh, the Texas marketplace, you know, Dallas, the large Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, those marketplaces are, are exceedingly healthy. Lots and lots and lots of growth and work and, and, and construction activity. Uh, the Triangle region, you know, the Carolinas, you know, Raleigh, it really, you know, especially the last 24 months I've seen a complete explosion in that marketplace of, of activity. Uh, Those are the two that first rise, you know, rise to, to the top, but Florida always, Florida just has some sort of secret sauce that the the construction market is just abundantly healthy there. Um, But, but those are the three markets that really come to, to mind when you think about the geographies that have had an overly abundant amount of construction activity uh, and increase in activity the last 24 months.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have a friend who works in, um, mortgages and she tends to texas is her area and i mean she said tech the texas housing market is insane and it's funny because i used to always think oh when you went to texas you could get like a giant house for not as much money and that is not the case anymore not
0: anymore no (laughs) it's uh but yeah the the amount of uh, volume of construction activity there is is it just seems you know uh overly abundant. That's why I go to I mean I I mean every market segment, every um every product type, yeah, it's just everything. You can see multifamily hospitality, healthcare, K to 12, uh institute, it's just all happening there. Uh so I, I couldn't even point to one specific uh uh market that was driving it or one one specific economic factor it's just it's everything and it's in abundance
1: yeah mm-hmm. And what about the opposite? Any downturns yeah. that have surprised you?
0: Um, again, and this is probably more of a concentration thing. We, we don't have a lot of work out on the, a lot of general contractors based out on the West coast, but you know, right. you, you did see during the pandemic, you know, folks that were uh, working for, I mean, you think about the show business and a lot of the market segments that are out there, they got really hurt during the pandemic. You know, there were Netflix wasn't building, you know, endless amounts of movie sets to, to fund their movies during the pandemic. I think right, that's right. kind of adjusted. Um, but for us, we just don't have a lot of exposure out there. So it's not fair to say that those markets have quieted down, but um, I think anecdotally they have. That um, makes sense. But yeah. they're still pretty healthy um, from like a holistic perspective. You know, I still see uh, the, the mountain region, you know, Denver is still pretty healthy, seeing a lot of work come online there. Yeah. Um, but but most of them I, I think just have moderated. I'm not saying that they've seen less, they've just sort of stayed a, a, a trajectory. Um right. I, I get concerned right now back to that volatility. You mentioned, you know, where, where I think we should be super concerned, um, that supply chain where we're starting to hear about allocations of products, like primarily, you know, uh, concrete and you know, Las Vegas, the mountain regions and we're trying to do some research to really understand if that will be long-term, but to your point, Megan, that will create a massive pressure on a project. Like if you're anticipating on pouring a thousand yards of concrete today, but overnight the, 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 the manufacturers decide we're only gonna give you 200 a week, okay. that completely changes the landscape of your entire project. Yeah. Uh, and I think as a huge risk to the overall marketplace, but that's what we're seeing right now. Um, in some of like the Salt Lake Vegas regions. Um, and, and there's no, there's no fix for that. You're, you're not gonna go get concrete somewhere else. They're also gonna give you the same allocation. So um, I'm not a legal person, but you know, I think some of our GCs are trying to look at that as a force majeure event, you know, trying to manage that through with their project owners to say, look, this has changed our game plan. Yeah. Uh, but it creates a lot of pressure and compression on the follow on trades that expected that work to be there.
2: Yeah. And it's also like interesting because, you know, having that, that could, I mean, that does completely mess up your whole project plan and flow. I mean, it, it's not like, I mean, there, there's a day by day plan of whatever, everything that has to happen. And if you're not going to get all your concrete on day two, when you're supposed to get it, it's going to F up everything. <laughs>
0: everything. It, it's a, it, it is an absolute catastrophic uh, change of, of plan. You know, and I go to catastrophic because we're, that's what we're hearing is allocations that are, are you know, they're nominal. Like, hey, we're going right. to give you 200 a week when you were supposed to be pouring, you know, 2,000 a week. I mean, you can't, yeah. you, you can only adjust so much when that kind, of, that kind of event happens. You know, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to change and go do something else. It's like, well, the entire project's built on that. So back to like that wood frame, if, if something happens there, it is truly catastrophic to your project.
2: Yeah. Not to mention like how you pour the concrete directly impacts the project. Like you, you might not be able to pour it if you don't, it, like you it, it have it's a planned segmented event. You can't just like go in with not just enough and expect. Right.
0: You literally have to have the exact volume <laughs> and, you know, it, it. it's, so again, we're, we're hearing that happening and it's not such a problem going forward because contractors can plan going forward. It's for the stuff that you'd already planned for that is now being affected. It's sort of that, that, same, you know, sort of that volatility risk is you can plan for what you know, today, you can't plan for what you, you know, what isn't expected for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but, but that's a, you, you mentioned when you mentioned regions, that's, that's what bubbled in my head is that specific region, what we've got on sort of high watch right now, because of, yeah. you know, some of those supply chain strains.
2: So I want to, I can't let you off this podcast without, um, talking about this. Cause when you and I first spoke, um, you had mentioned, I think you went to school in upstate New York. And when you got your first job, it was in New Haven, Connecticut. And I think you had asked your friend, you're like, where, where's New Haven.
0: (laughs) That's yeah. I'm not afraid to admit to it. So I, I, uh, I I had an on-campus interview with, with my, 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 my first employer, I don't I don't mind sharing the name. They they gave me a lot of the, the marketplace knowledge. So Whiting Turner was incredible. They they did a, an on campus interview, um, and, and it wasn't it wasn't the best interview. So I actually got a letter that said you know thanks but no thanks. So I was really really upset. I said I really like that company. I really want to go go work there. And I uh, one of one of my friends at at school said hey I've got a friend. She works in there. You know she works at Whiting Turner. She can probably get you an interview at one of the regional offices. So, um, you know, I, I I picks up the phone, calls me, says, "Yep, yeah, we, we'd like to, you know, we, we'd like to to have you come, you know, do an interview, and, and and we think we think that there's a real opportunity here for you to have a position here." And I was like, "Great, great." You know, he's like, uh, "He's like, yeah, we're based out of New Haven, Connecticut," and you know, I was like, "Yep, absolutely, no problem. That sounds great." And I hang up the phone and I turn to my friend. I'm like, "Where's New Haven?" I was like, "I have no clue." <laughs> Like weird, I I I remember it vividly, and I forget all the conversation leading we up to But I remember turning. To him, where's New Haven? And he goes, you know, you know Yale. I was like, yeah. He goes, it's there. I said, where's Yale? Like I was like, <laughs> I, I, all of these things were the bubble I lived in in Western New York. Was like I I knew all of these things and these places existed. I just didn't know how far they were, where they were. So you know, and they they made a, a tremendous amount of fun of me. It's like you know, hey, let's let's go look at a map. So. Uh, it, it, uh, it was one of those funny events of, you know, sort of piecing it all together. And then I realized it was driving distance. So I, you know, I hopped in the car and seven hours later, uh, got <laughs> myself the world's best pizza, hands down. Which place? Uh, so I'm a firm, I'm a firm supporter of, uh, of Barstool's, uh, position on it that Pepe's is, is the best, yes. but you have to try the trifecta. You've got to try Sally's and modern and make your own yes. judgment. Uh, but I will judge if you don't pick that base because it's yeah.
2: definitely the best. Pepe's is my favorite. You know, I never had Sally's until I think two summers ago, and we tried it, and I was like, you know what, it's pretty good too. <laughs> but I
0: still there, prefer Pepe's. That's what I mean. You have to try the trifecta. That I will support. I will support uh, th- that observation. Is you've got to try all three and make your own judgment. But I think most people end up picking
2: Pepe's. And my my brother's a modern fan, so I mean family divided
0: <laughs> too greasy for me but that's you know i i think it's also delicious
1: doesn't modern have like a mashed potatoes pizza or something Is that the i i could have sworn
0: so i think they all actually have a mashed potato pizza so um, it, I, that must a, be a,
1: it's a connecticut yeah. thing
0: I, i'm a fan of the uh the pepe's roasted red peppers uh and, and and you know they they do like a three cheese type setup but it's
2: uh-huh. Pepe's it's, where it's, at.
0: it's where it's at
2: thank you so much bill for for coming on i appreciate the you know the time that you gave us before we hop off i want to ask you this so we ask everyone this and you know <laughs> if you were to give someone or give yourself some uh, your younger self advice what would it be
0: is it only one piece of advice because there i've got so much more than one piece of advice
2: <laughs> it's gonna um, it be more than one piece of advice <laughs>
0: Yeah, honestly, it's uh, uh, the I, I was never a fan of trying new things. I mean, we can even talk about it through the lens of of trying new foods. It, as the younger me, I was very much you know uh, a closed you know lived in a closed bubble. wasn't wasn't open to trying new things. wasn't open to you know uh, it didn't handle change really well. I just wasn't. Um, I've, I've shared that characteristic with my son, by the way, and it drives me bad. Um, you know, fast forward, you know, go through a, a career in the construction industry and now in the insurance space, and you get to see all these experiences was uh, being much, I'm much more open-minded than I ever was, you know, much more, uh, uh, much a better listener than I was. So, yeah, I would tell my younger self to be, you know, to to be a little bit more adaptable to, new experiences and change in, uh, and other things, you know, live less in that bubble. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily advice as much as, as much as it is perspective. Um, but, but I would, uh, I would say try to, you know, I, I'd almost go for a full personality change. Don't, don't be <laughs> such an introvert, you know, start, start exhibiting some of those extrovert qualities that I know I now have.
2: Yeah. Um, I share that too, because I always was like very shy and I still have these introverted characteristics, but I, I remember even when I graduating law school, I was like, oh, I could, I could never be a litigator. I couldn't talk in front of people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now look what I'm doing all the time. <laughs> yeah. Same.
0: I, I was very, you go back and ask any of my, my friends from, from, from grade school. I was timid and quiet and and tried to you know bl- blend into the background that was more my you know that was my personality yeah um still exhibit some of those qualities from time to time but i i've overcome some of that but i, I would tell my younger self you know be more willing to put yourself out there
2: i think that's great advice it is. I'm, I'm sure you're but i don't know if your t- your son appreciates it when
0: you tell him. no me. no i i <laughs> try i try but it's uh <laughs> No, he'll
2: come around
0: (laughs) but you know it's uh it's sort of the world's way of you know you know you you did this to your parents so it's also going to happen to you it's sort of that boomerang effect that you know your parents are hoping for you know because I'll talk to my parents every so often and say something and they're like I knew a kid like that once (laughs) it's the it's the world's way of having it come back around
1: there you go can't wait
0: (laughs)
2: So, well, Bill, thank you so much for, for joining us. I truly appreciate you coming on and chatting. Um, and you know, and I'd love to have you come back on in like a year and we could talk about how the marketplace is changed. Did we make now. it
0: to the cliff? I hope we don't, I right. hope I'm wrong, yes. but I yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I uh, unfortunately, and I will take my gray cloud with me when I, when we leave right now, but I, uh, I, I don't have that optimism, but I, you know, we'll, we'll see what the rest of 22 brings. Uh, I'm sure, you know, there's it something there.
2: One, it, it might be one of those, you know, pictures where it looks like the cliff to you, but you don't, you don't see the shelf that's below and you're too afraid to really look over. You never know.
0: That's I, look, I want it's your- it,
1: it's good. That's good.
0: I want your scenario. I want your scenario. And then no, no one, you know, I think in one of your early episodes. I, I have the eight ball and I'm going to shake it. And I'm like, you know, I, am I, am I wrong? Am I wrong? I hope I'm wrong. Um, Coming but around. I, you know, li- living in this risk role, you see too many bad things happen. So, you know, you sort of have to, I'm planning for that worst case scenario that it all sort of uh, all all comes together at one point And then, you know, there's this massive fallout from it so if i if i set the expectation accordingly and it's something better than that silver lining
2: that's what we're hoping we're hoping for better than bill's doom yes there we go (laughs) there you go
0: (laughs) volume two coming coming in a year (laughs)
2: let's book it sounds good. well, thank you. And again, for all our listeners out there, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense Never Rest on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us at YouTube at TNDR Podcast. Thank you. Bye.